0: Pair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter,
1: and I'm Joanna Sharino,
0: and in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. and this is the VinePair podcast. It's you know, it's it's a. I don't want to say we're obviously going to give you guys podcasts throughout the holiday season because you know we like we're, we're you know we we're giving that. people yeah we're giving <clears> people, <throat> but uh, it's it's kind of crazy <laughs> to think that like we are recording one of our last like big big podcasts before uh, before the new year. Yeah,
1: this year really flew
0: it did didn't it yeah it really did it's crazy anyways (laughs) enough nostalgia oh by the way zach i will tell you uh Mm -hmm. you know i've gotten some really positive emails uh, about friday's recording oh good about the episode people were like you know tim's back (laughs) you know like tim and zach really really had a nice chemistry this time i was like oh that's nice to hear
1: Yeah, I thought it was a great episode.
0: I did too. I did too. So, thank you guys so much for uh, for pitching in while Joanna and I both had to deal it's very with very predictable situation. Tim
1: McCurdy pick, picking the Mango Odeve as <laughs> his course. favorite. Of
2: course. Can
1: I actually ask before
2: we before we move on to what we've been drinking? Just if either of you have a a bottle in particular on that list that was like your your favorite or something that you felt strongly about. Ooh.
1: I loved the the Vietnamese uh gin that okay. he spoke about the number eight song Kai one that was really exceptional to me and I loved the Appleton estate rum
0: does shit that's all I'm gonna say <laughs> yeah I really liked the uh, so the Appleton I came in and out of that tasting uh there was like a lot going on that day and I remember when someone just like handed me the Appleton and I didn't know what it was and I you know taste I was like holy shit, what is this hmm it was really that incredible. I was I also did like the Eagle Rare 17, but again, that's one of those things where like it's also fun to taste it because it's so hard to find. Josh is a big fan obviously. Yeah. Um I also really liked the Dickel uh 17. Yes. Yeah. I thought that that was really delicious and I think Again, it's like the for me like Dickel kind of this sleeper inside of a major company. I don't think you know most people realize it's probably owned by Diageo, um, and I think like I'm going to be very curious to see what Diageo does with this brand in the next few years because I think they have a few opportunities. Right, like they could either go sort of take it and try to go head to head with Jack Daniels, or they could really like lean into the Taters who've clearly you know feel like they've discovered Dickel all of a sudden and almost like go head to head with Sazerac in a way of like also having a a brown liquid that appeals to this you know group of people that are willing to search high and low for these these bottlings and that's definitely where I I, I feel like I would go but you know obviously they also they're they have a uh, shareholders to uh answer to so yeah, <laughs> yeah who knows uh but yeah I, I th- those were sort of my my standouts uh but I thought the entire list was was pretty awesome this year you know again with both our top 50 wines and our top 50 spirits the list just keep getting better and better which is which is you always want to see (laughs) um speaking of things that we've been drinking zach what have you been drinking
2: yeah. So, and actually, speaking of things that are on the list, I mentioned on that episode, but I wanted to reiterate in case you didn't listen. Um, I did recently try the eleventh release of the uh, High West, a uh, midwinter night's dram. I got the name right this time. <laughs> <laughs> so, I uh, couldn't edit around that one, as it turned out. I tried. Not mid-summer. <laughs> um, not midsummer. Maybe they should start releasing that one too. I don't know exactly <laughs> what that would be, but pretty different. Um, and it was really interesting because actually, I got sent that, and I sent a bottle of um another collaboration that High West uh, or a collaboration the high west did with another constellation brand uh, the prisoner wine company <clears throat> which is the prisoner share which is you know again whiskey that's aged in x prisoner barrels and uh both are interesting and and really different um you know the uh, midwinter's night is aged in port barrels so you might think it wouldn't be all that distinctive um you know yeah prisoner red blend sometimes has some port like characteristics to it for sure but uh, really pretty distinct um bottles i think Probably the whiskey that they're entering into the barrel is pretty different, I would bet, Um, you know, looking for sort of different finished profile. Mm -hmm. They're looking definitely with the prisoner share for something that's a little bit richer and more opulent. And uh, I think the midwinter shows more of the kind of like, I don't want to say like, racy side but you know it's it's more clearly rice centric and spicier um, along with kind of like toffee and um, mm-hmm. those kind of winter spice notes and both quite tasty uh, i had the opportunity to sit down with a rare treat for me with my wife and taste through both of them she's a big high west fan in general so uh yeah nice. that was just a that was a nice treat for the two of us uh once you know the interminable bedtime was over for the kids yeah yeah <laughs> uh, joanna how about you
1: yeah, not too uh, not too much recently. We did um I've had some funky town beers that uh <laughs> are left over from our next wave party. Those are nice really job. good. <laughs> 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 I really like cuff and season, the Irish red ale. Cool. And then the spiked hot chocolate that I said I was gonna make with some, How was it? What'd you do? Kahlua. Pretty, okay. you know, pretty basic. I kind of – we're getting a little stagnant on the uh, cocktail-making front over here. So I need to to step up my game over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Adam?
0: So we – I made that Manhattan I said I was craving. Okay. So that was fun. Um, and then also we had – although, again, it was very hard to find cocktail cherries. Yeah. Like very hard. Do you guys yeah. find this? Like I – I went to multiple places to find cocktail cherries, and no one had them. And all places had were like gross maraschino cherries. And yeah, it was only yeah. one place with like literally the cherry looked like it was, you know, had been lit up by a neon sign of electricity. It was like <laughs> so disgusting looking. But it's it's crazy to me. And then I finally had to go, of course, like a specialty grocery store, yeah. and get them. And it was ten dollars. And I was just like, ugh. But it was a delicious Manhattan nonetheless. And then we celebrated a birthday of our, of our close friend, Lana. We took her out for her 40th. And I had a 2010 Beaujolais. Huh,
1: and I don't ooh. think
0: I've had a Beaujolais that was that old before. That's pretty old, yeah. Uh, it was a crew Beaujolais. And it was really, really delicious. I was – very surprised. I mean not surprised obviously I don't think the song would have recommended it had they had they not already known that it was great I think they had a few of these bottles and so I had tasted one recently um but it was really cool to have a Beaujolais that was you know almost 14 years old yeah yeah so today's topic so I just want everyone to to remember this we said That coming out of COVID, we were going to see a lot of mergers and acquisitions. We said that there was going to be a lot of companies with cash on their balance sheets, and they were going to look to take that cash off their balance sheets by making purchases. And we've seen this happen again and again over the course of this year. We've seen lots of winery acquisitions. We've seen some really big spirits acquisitions. But I would say that one of the most shocking acquisitions to happen this year is coming at the close of this year, which is the acquisition of Cavassier from Beam Suntory to Grupo Campari. And I think a lot of people were really shocked by that for a few reasons, but the biggest because Cognac has been one of the biggest roller coaster spirits Mm -hmm. post-COVID. So in COVID, Cognac had a massive explosion of growth Basically, you know, Hennessy was on fire, Remy was on fire, Cavalsier was on fire, so much so that cognac producers ran out of stock. People were just buying, buying, buying. And then it is the spirit that really came back to earth the hardest post-COVID. Uh, really fell in sales, um, people not buying it as much, and then it faced you know, the competition was already facing with then on premise, its big its biggest nemesis, tequila really started to sh- to steal its share, especially uh when we talk about on-premise club uh style
1: mm-hmm.
0: outings, right? So, you know, nightclubs, uh, other types of entertainment venues, like strip clubs, actually, uh, et cetera, where tequila and and baller bottles have really been the things that are now being purchased by people as opposed to cognac. But if you read the analysis, I think it's really interesting is that like this is not surprising for Campari. This is what Campari has done in the past. And the most prominent uh, instance of this is their purchase of wild turkey at a time when wild turkey was also – when bourbon was also on the decline. And Gru- Grupo Campari has a knack for sort of identifying when the price is right in a category they have a very strong feeling will rebound. Um, so, you know, the CEO who, who made the purchase, he is, I'm going to mispronounce his name, so I'm just not going to say it. You can look up who the CEO of Grupo Campari <laughs> is. Uh, but he, um, he's in his last year. As uh, CEO of Campari, he's been the head of Campari Group for almost two decades, and in that time, he's led a lot of very smart uh, acquisitions. Group of Campari has been mentioned to me by lots of other executives in the alcohol space at rival companies as – being a company that they see as being very strategic and smart in the way that they've grown the business, especially over the last few decades, uh, you know, most I think people who listen to the podcast who are not in the business business, right? So on, on the um, on the producer side, they're on the you know, our listeners who are bartenders, uh, soms, etc., may only really think of Campari for uh, Apérol and. Its namesake, but actually, like the liquids that make them almost the most money now are things like Grand Marnier, uh, Espelon Tequila, which is another brand they took when it was on the decline and have really grown it to be the well staple of most bars across the country. Um, But so it's not surprising. It's very interesting. And it's also interesting that Beam Suntory would sell it. Yeah. I think it's probably because. Centauri is realizing that like they do want to focus on the two things that they were the two areas where they're growing, which is generally whiskey, right? North American where they own probably they they own the largest stock of North American uh, whiskey in out of all the corporations because of their ownership of obviously beam and then a Japanese whiskey where they own the largest stock of any corporation in Japanese whiskey. And then, you know, they're starting to do very well in tequila. Um, So it could be that they just, they want this, this loss off their balance sheets, want to concentrate elsewhere. But um, no, I think it's, there's a lot to talk about here. I think Campari is obviously taking a risk, but one that they think is a, is a smart one. Um, I don't know. What did you both think when you saw this news?
2: So I think it's really interesting. I think the two things that, that first jumped to mind are one is you know, is this just Pass another the Cavalcia, example? The song past the no, okay, that's sure. that the first thing that came to mind. Correct, <laughs> that is actually the first thing that came to mind. Yes, uh, I will not deny it. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, um, yeah, yeah, folks. Well, it's 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 a, it's a it's a time capsule. Let's put it that way. Uh, it if you if you haven't listened, you know you can you can go search that one out. In any case, uh, what I was going to say is the the two things that came to mind beyond past the song. One was that, you know, kind of what you were getting at, Adam, is this another example of Grupo Campari buying the dip, right? Like looking at the the temporary perhaps step back in cognac sales and saying, yeah, we don't buy that as a, as a real concern. And whether Beam Centauri has other kind of larger uh, ambitions in other categories or just you know, didn't want to be doing the cognac thing anymore, who knows, maybe we'll find out eventually. And and it reminds me of an adage actually from a, a, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to that is not a Vine pair podcast, which is that people pay... What? Uh, they, I know, it's hard to believe. <laughs> uh, but people pay too much attention to uh, the direction of a trend and not uh, to the sort of absolute position. And when you look at what cognac mm-hmm. has done in the US over the last decade plus, it's impossible to argue that it hasn't had incredible growth. And, you know, more than doubled uh, sales from 2010 to 2020 has continued to go up. And if you look at the the sort of year over year decline over the last year or so as a big shock, it's it's important to remember that it's probably coming off an unrealistic high, mm-hmm. um, yep. at least for where it came from. And we'll talk more about why that is in a little bit, I'm sure. So, to me, it's like there are those pieces. And then I think the other one that's always fascinating to me when it comes to Cognac is the relative positioning of the sort of big Cognac producers in the American market, right? And like I don't – either of you might be able to confirm this and actually here's where the song is quasi-relevant. Like Crevasse has always a little bit struggled to set itself apart or, or kind of appeal to the Hennessy crowd, which is really yep. the sort of top brand in America when it comes to Cognac. And – Corvassier has, I think, struggled at times to sort of figure out what is its angle in. Is it looking to convert Hennessy drinkers into Corvassier drinkers? Maybe. Obviously, there's some of that. Is it we're looking at a different kind of clientele? We're looking at um, we're trying to kind of put product on the market that appeals differently. And I think it's just the case that given what Campari has done with some of these other brands, they they must have a strategy that aims to solve some of those or answer some of those mm-hmm. questions in a way that I'm not sure that I feel super qualified to to speculate on. But I think that part of this has to be it's a brand with good but not great name recognition in the U.S. and a category with, you know, solid growth. So there has to be some sort of, you know, thing. I don't think it's going to just be business as usual. Let's put it that way. Right. Right.
1: Well, I think that's interesting because I do when we think of cognac in the U.S., I think we only think of three brands. Right. And and Campari has a cognac already. but I don't think many people would know it by name. And that's why I think this is such a smart decision on their part, mostly because I think there are huge opportunities outside of the U.S. market too. That Mm -hmm. made this a really smart acquisition for them. You know, when you think about the two, I think the UK and Asia are the biggest markets outside of the U.S. for cognac. I think that's what I, yeah, that's correct, right? So I think that, you know, Like Zach said, they're kind of identifying, making the smart decision uh, based on the historical uh, sales data around the category.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, all in all. So one of the things that, first of all, that blew me away when I was looking at the data um, this morning is Cavassier Wall, I think it's probably the third most well-known brand by the Majority of just like pop culture people, and I think a lot yeah. of that does have to do with the fact that it is mentioned in songs. Uh, it also, I think the ladies' man on SNL usually drank Cavassier, uh, right? Nice, Wasn't it yes. yeah, I think you're yeah. right, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, like so. There was a lot of pop culture measures, I think, because Cavassier is very fun to say, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's number four actually in uh in actual volume sales. Number one is Hennessy by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Number two is Remy. And number three now is Doucet, which oh. is owned by Bacardi and, was, and and partly by Jay-Z. So th- it's four. And then I think Martel's is a distant fifth, mm-hmm. uh, which I totally, I think that that's the one that everyone forgets about, to be very honest. Like, wait, Martel? And, you know, funny because it's, it's a French company that owns Martel Pernod. Um, but yeah, and I also think it's very interesting that, you know, a French company owns the biggest one, then a French company was the second biggest one. And then it's now you have, you know, a Latin American family that owns the third mm-hmm. and a Italian family that owns the fourth. But I think that also what they're betting on, as Joanna, you mentioned, is I think there are a lot of people that are very skeptical, including Vine Pear uh editorial team, potentially <laughs> myself, <laughs> that Tequila has this ability to become the premium,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: nightlife spirit outside of the U.S. And I think that you know we've talked a bunch about this. Tequila has a very specific flavor profile, and I think that a lot of people's initial uh, way they fall in love with tequila is through very specific Mexican cocktails, and often attached to Mexican food,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you just don't find that in Europe and Asia. Yeah. While I think that tequila will will have a, a some sort of a place in Europe, I I am not I'm not convinced yet and again it's going to be a larger conversation that I would love to have in the new year whether tequila can become that ma- that massive spirit in Europe. You've seen American bourbon struggle in Europe. Uh you see similarly gin which is massive in Europe struggle in the United States. So there's a lot of comps here. I'm not just like saying this because I don't you know, I'm like, oh, well, you know, Americans love tequila. And I don't think the Europeans will. And people who think they will, you can come at me. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. But I just, I, I'm not fully convinced here. Whereas cognac has not only history in, in all parts of the world, thanks to just global trade, but also it's a very approachable palate
1: mm-hmm. in
0: a very different way. Right. And there's multiple ways to drink it. On top of that, I think that Campari recognizes. That while we may be going through a moment where tequila is big across the board in um you know in popular culture in America, be- tequila doesn't have the same history investing in a specific community that cognac does. Cognac, as a whole, has a very specific history in investing in the black community in America, and. I don't think that that investment will just get forgotten in the long run. And I think that is why they can feel very confident that there will always be a pretty steady market for them in the US, and then other people will come in and out of the category. But Kornak as a whole has really been very supportive of Black culture, Black – you know. Sports, et cetera, right there. You know, Hennessy's massive support of the NBA. So Remy is as well, you know, lots of things like that, right? So there is just, I think, in that marketing investment, a belief – we've written a long story uh, that you can read a few years ago about Hennessy's early, early, early on investment, like starting in World War II when they realized that, you know, black GIs were were drinking tons of cognac who were coming back from France. So – I think that's what makes them feel confident in making the bet. And, you know, Beam, on the other hand, what I did not realize until getting to know Beam is they're actually really only in 16 markets globally. Hmm. I think they probably want to to invest more in those markets. And – Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe I think, you know, Campari probably feels like in the same way they're, they're marketing Grand Marnier. They can kind of just do the same thing with Cobalcier. They're sort of marketing Grand Marnier both as a spirit that goes with cocktail, goes in cocktails as a key cocktail ingredient. But also you see a lot of messaging with Grand Marnier as a cognac based liqueur that is very sippable. Yeah. And I think they probably think they can do the same playbook. And, that makes sense to me. Now, the other thing that we wanted to talk about, which I think is a larger conversation here, is that I also think that Campari might be one of the first companies that at least by by making this purchase is admitting that they don't fully buy the, the general drumbeat that we're hearing that alcohol sales are on the long-term decline. And I think what they are betting here is what I've heard other people say privately in the alcohol world, which is... The decline is 100% COVID-based. Mm-hmm. It is that we had we basically all, you know, had a had a two and a half year bender. People were doing cocaine out in public. They were, you know, tripping balls. They were doing, you know, every night they were bored, so they drank two bottles of wine. But what about the rest co- of us, Adam? <laughs> just me. Was that just me? <laughs> was I the only one that was doing that? Shit. <laughs> you know, they were just like. But now they're coming out of it. There's a desire to be he- more healthy, right? There's a desire to look better because, again, a lot of people put on weight in COVID. I've had this conversation with other people that listen to this podcast as well. So they're like, okay, well, I I, I want to get back in shape. So they they're they're not they're not stopping their drinking, but they're drinking less because again, like the consumption habits were just massive, and we're going back to pre-COVID normalcy. And I do think that it's just a reset. And the idea that all of these companies were going to keep that like 25% increase in consumption is kind of insane. And we we saw this happen in every other industry. And I think that what's going to ultimately happen in alcohol over the next year and a half or so is there's going to be a course correction. You're going to see layoffs. You're going to see people correct supply. Mm-hmm. Basically, hold things back to go back to a level that was pre. You saw this happen in tech, right? All these companies that massively staffed up—Zoom, Google, Salesforce, etc.—that all have had cuts because they have to go back to pre-pandemic normal.
1: I mean, we saw it in publishing as well, right? Yeah, same it's, thing.
0: It's the same thing. Everyone staffed up because there was people were sitting at home and like consuming content like crazy, and now they have time to do other things. Right, when you're sitting at home alone in your house or with – hopefully with friends or a partner but some people alone or your dog or cat or rabbit, uh, you know, you basically – you're thinking stuff, OK, it's 5 o'clock. I guess I'll have some drinks. Like there was not that much else to do and I think what what's so crazy to me is I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday where I was like – Rob in our office actually. I was like it was only two Decembers ago that we had lockdowns basically again, and like Canada shut their borders and I couldn't go to Montreal. (laughs) Like, you know, everyone was still panicking about COVID and it's not that long ago. And I think that last year was the beginning of the reset and this year was the hard reset. And what's gonna have to happen in the next year or two in the alcohol beverage business is people fully recognizing that reset and setting different goals that aren't off COVID comps. And Campari, I think, is just the first to do that.
2: Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that not only was there that you know probably just more drinking in 2020 and 2021, perhaps than we would have expected in a without a pandemic, but also that like for a lot of the like a lot of what happened was you know how people consumed got so scrambled uh, because it was all at home for a lot of people in that period of time, and it it not only changed the amount people drank, but what they drank to some extent, um, the occasions upon which they drank, which I think is all stuff you were getting at, Adam. And as we're slowly seeing this kind of post-COVID landscape shake out, some of it is, I mean, as we talked about during that period of time, changes and trends that we saw in covid it was hard to know what would stick and what wouldn't because it's hard to know what the post covid landscape would look like because it just was you know so hard to know at that time especially pre vaccines and stuff like that when that would happen and what it would all mean but but the point is that we're now far enough away at least from sort of the the lockdown and um sort of at, only at home consumption period of covid where businesses should have a good handle on this. And we've talked, you've talked about sort of some examples of that. I think one of the most important ones, and I think this is where the conversation can come back specifically to Carvassia anyway, is all of these on-premise drinking occasions that went away in COVID or at least early in COVID and now have come back in certain forms. And again, you mentioned nightclubs and stuff like that sort of party atmosphere vibes and brands understanding or trying to understand, okay, With the sort of quasi hard reset of that whole category, where do we want to be? Where What can we get into those spots, especially globally, not even just in the US? And again, I think this purchase, as you said, is is a lot about positioning Carvassier in those spots, not just here in the US, but especially in European markets and things like that. And and just kind of disregarding 2020 and 2021 and saying like, we don't really, it doesn't really matter to us what the two or three year trend line looks like for this brand, because we don't really believe it tells us anything meaningful about what it will look like moving forward.
1: Yeah. I think this is also interesting kind of in this economic moment too. Um, the IWSR analysis uh, based off of the cognac and tequila and uh, vodka sales volumes kind of identify that like the cognac consumer is feeling the economic pinch right now and they're reining in their appetite for this high status, high priced category in favor of more cost effective alternatives. But like, I think that is only temporary, mm-hmm. right? So I think that also kind of plays into this decision from Campari to, uh, you know, make this acquisition.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, the, the, as I said at the beginning of the program, these were not predictions. These are these were predictions that had been made. Sorry, and I think people maybe forgot about them. But two years ago, this was what people were saying: that there's going to be companies that go shopping that did very well. That you know are going to start looking for things they can buy, and Campari is one of those companies that, as we said, has historically looked for buying dips and they did very well and they were doing very well pre-covid we can't forget right aperol was on fire yeah they basically had created the phenomenon of the spritz across globally right like there's almost nowhere you can go now you know in especially in the western world where in the summer people aren't ma- you know, drinking massive amounts of spritzes and so there's just you know they have cash yeah. They bought this for over a billion. It's the it's the biggest purchase they've made. To be fair, um, but it's still a very good price for this brand, a very historic brand. Uh, so I think it's. I would have a lot of confidence right now betting on on Campari being able to do something with this, because I also just happen to have a lot of confidence in the cognac market. I just don't. I think yes. Well,
1: they do too. Clearly,
0: clearly, that, you know, like we like I've said, this is a dip, but it is a historic spirit that has a very loyal following from from large demographics of people and they have a history of being you know very loyal to their consumers it's going to be fine it may have some down years but it's going to ultimately be fine and some of these other brands we'll see that's also why people i think are so bullish on bourbon in the long run in america like it's it has a lot of history in investing itself in the communities that are big supporters of it. And like, while it had some dips in like the seventies the and eighties, like at this point in time, the category, while it may not ever massively boom again, is going to be pretty stable and large. So, you know, I think a lot of it though is going to be like, let's just resetting the comps and, and seeing where, where things fall. But look, I I feel this way about wine too. Like all this doom and gloom about wine. I think wine has a lot to fix. And you know, a lot of places that it still needs to go and some hard truths that needs to tell itself about, you know, who it needs to market to. But in the long run, wine will be fine. There's yes, just gonna always. be some shakeout. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, let us know what you think. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. Um, and also, you know, I've I've thrown this out here before, but like if you if you there's a topic you wanna hear us chat about, so there's something that's uh, you know on your mind that you've seen happen in the news, et cetera, let us know. We, we, we love to consider, uh, you know, these topics as we plan out each recording week and, uh, Zach and Joanna, I'll talk to you on Friday.
1: Have an awesome week. Sounds
2: great.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast, the flagship podcast, of the vine pair podcast network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The VinePair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network.